0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Me, My Teen, and the News. Me, I'm Tim. My teen is Ben. Hi. Ben's 14 and we talk about life, what goes on in the modern age versus the olden days when I grew up, and we invariably talk about news and we wanted to bring our conversations to you. So first let's talk a little bit about ourselves. So I spent 20 plus years working in local news, newspapers and television stations and radio stations and digital publications. So I have some idea of what's happening in the world and how news gets made. Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, my name's Ben, I'm in high school. I like soccer and that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, it's 2020, I don't do a whole lot. So Ben is 14.
0: And has had a phone since he turned 12 when his mother and I first decided to leave him alone for an hour or two or some period of time at a time. But we didn't have a landline, so it was his big argument for getting a phone. Made sense. What that also did was open the world to him. And how do you get most of your news, Ben? Uh, From the Apple News thingy that comes right preloaded on the phone. You mean you don't read the newspaper? Nope. Listen to news talk radio? Nope. Stay awake and watch the 11 o'clock news on your local channel? Nope. Hmm, those are all the ways I used to get news. So we're gonna talk about some of those differences that come with that. But first, we can't talk about the news without talking about the ongoing pandemic and how it's affected all of us. I'm working from home. Ben is doing his school virtually, so uh, freshman year at a new high school, uh, what's it been like doing school virtually?
1: Well, you know, it's been kind of easy and kind of hard at the same time. It's easy if you know the material because it's not very time-consuming because there's no in-class instruction, but it can also be pretty hard because if you don't know it, I mean, it takes a while to contact your teacher, and then you have to set up Zoom meetings and all that jazz. So it's a double-edged sword in that regard. So, geography, not so bad. Geometry,
0: another story. Yep. Yes. Fortunately, he has me here to pretend to help him. Usually <laughs> I just say, uh, set up a messy, a meeting with your teacher. <laughs> yep. Uh, It also means that Ben and I spend a lot of time together. Uh, When's the last time you hung out with your friends, Ben? Uh, March of last year. About the same for me, Uh, you know, just because it has been prudent not to hang out. Now, Ben has been playing, did get to play on his high school soccer team with their outdoor practices. And that did help with some of the isolation and getting to know people at your new school. He's nodding his head. Mm-hmm. Ben, this
1: is an audio medium, yeah, so I know, talking I know. is important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, high school soccer, that was fun. They're a good group of guys. And, you know, it's just fun to be able to still play soccer. And now it's the winter, and I'm with a select team indoors, but they only practice once a week. And it's been so cold out lately that I can't go outside and practice. Well,
0: that's one big news story that's going on right now. As we speak, we are in a part of the country about to get six to nine inches of snow. Fortunately, it's snow for us and not ice like it is in a lot of other parts of the country. Uh, Ben, have you been following the weather news out there?
1: Yeah, a little bit. Apparently, Texas is getting a decent amount of snow and it's leaving a lot of... People without power because they're not equipped to handle it
0: yes and a number of pileups and crashes and just horrible horrible things that are happening Mm -hmm. Uh, I did see that the governor of Texas asked people to stay home um, and that it's been quite uh, a, a terrible feat across much of the country This is the polar vortex uh, phenomenon that has brought it down into the country. And I believe it was about four or five years ago there was a similar uh,
1: scenario. Yeah, I think I remember it was, yeah, four or five years ago, as you said. And the snow wasn't bad, but the wind chill made it into like the negative... 20s or something crazy like that. That's right, Uh, which was um, no fun, no fun.
0: (laughs) But every time we see news and Twitter and various feeds when there's extreme weather, uh, there's this confusion over climate change and global warming and those terms. What have you been taught in science classes and otherwise about how the climate might be changing and
1: why? Well, climate change is a more broad term, because that means the climate's getting more extreme on both ends. Hotter summers, really cold winters, and global warming's just the hot summer part of that. And But the fact that the glaciers are melting is just drastically changing the climate all over the world, really, at all times.
0: And was that something you were taught in school? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah? Were there people in your school who thought that global warming or climate change wasn't real? I've got people in my class who think the earth is flat, so yeah. So you really have people who who talk about that? Yep. What other conspiracy kind of things do you hear from
1: classmates? Eh, flat earth is the big one. Climate change is a hoax. More recently, the Trump won the election, right, but overall it's not conspiracy theories that they're getting from the internet they're getting it from their parents. I see I did even hear once that uh there was a trend of people
0: not believing that Helen Keller was real. Have you ever heard that No okay, well at least not not every conspiracy theory makes it to the grade school and high school level, I suppose. <laughs> But that's something interesting. You say that they these your classmates get these from their parents. And other news sources, I mean, they all have phones, right? Yeah. Where do they uh, spend time getting information on their phones?
1: Well, personally, I don't really have a whole lot of social media. I mean, I have a few things, but the biggest, especially among high schoolers, is TikTok, which I can't stand for a multitude of reasons. And Snapchat and Instagram, which, you know, aren't really the most reliable sources of information. Why can't you stand TikTok? Well, first of all, it's it's just a worse version of Vine. Second of all, the whole, you know, stealing your information, selling it to China, not really my thing.
0: (laughs) Now, what makes you think that it's being sold to China? Well, first of all, it's a Chinese company. Well, there are plenty of American companies. That doesn't mean they're sharing data with the American government.
1: Well, yeah, and also the fact that the military actually doesn't allow their service members to have TikTok on their phones. That's an indication to you that it
0: may not be safe and secure. Yeah. See, and here, I thought you just didn't like it because you, as
1: a 14-year-old boy, you didn't want to do all the dancing. That's part of it, but still, it's been proven that your data is probably going to China. I mean, they have these huge server farms in Singapore, which then get transferred over to China. What what they want with a bunch of teenagers' information? Who knows? But so, still, how do you know that? Why do you believe that's true? Well, it's a multitude of things. Like there's been significant government action. I mean, Trump wanted to ban TikTok, and he gave them, like, a 90-day limit unless they changed ownership because of credible evidence of the info going over to China. So, you know, if the U.S. government says, hey, your information's getting taken by China, uh, my information's getting taken by China.
0: So you're believing this because, you know, President Trump was saying these things.
1: Not just him, I mean, prominent leaders from all walks of the government and the news have denounced TikTok for their pretty shady handling of users' personal information. It's kind of like foreign Facebook in a way. Hmm. Facebook, of course, is now a global company,
0: but you think they're okay because they're American.
1: I mean with the terms of service thing that no one ever reads I mean they have access to sell your data to third-party corporations with pretty much little to no oversight and that's why a lot of Congress members have been calling for hearings and antitrust suits and all of that because you know that's how Facebook makes its money it's not ad revenue it's selling your data. It's selling information, right? Well, let's unpack that a little bit.
0: I will say Facebook makes a lot of money from ad revenue because of the data Facebook has. So there have been cases where Facebook has sold data, but what Facebook does is provide advertisers really specific targeted data about users so that they can say, uh, target a 37 year old male who's interested in buying a hybrid with ads from car companies that are geographically targeted to the location where that user lives. So that if I one time, just one time, search the word hybrid for a month, I get ads about hybrids from different companies. Nobody has that kind of power in advertising, which is why Facebook and Google, which does similar things, have become so powerful in generating revenue from advertisers. Of course, my chosen fields and industries television, newspaper, radio, they've all suffered uh, in some sense because they don't have that kind of targeting. When you have a broadcast tower, you reach everybody in that geography and you can't really target down to the individual, though there are some things happening in broadcasts that will allow some of that uh, in future iterations. Uh, But uh, I think it's safe to say when advertising is the driving revenue factor, privacy may not be the number one factor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've experienced it firsthand with Google because, you know, we're looking at getting a car for me, and so I've been doing a decent amount of research on cars.
0: I just want to point out, to be clear, we're looking at getting a second car, which eventually will be yours, (laughs) potentially, if you show you can drive safely a couple of years from now.
1: All right, all right, geez. But still, we've been looking at cars, especially one the Ford brand, And I've been using Spanish websites to help me with Spanish for online school, and all of a sudden on Spotify, I'm getting, like, a bunch of ads for Ford in Spanish. (laughs) And I don't speak Spanish, I never communicate in Spanish, but because I'm using Spanish dictionary websites, I'm getting ads for stuff in Spanish. Do you understand the ads? Of course not. Yeah, that would be a shame. (laughs) I guess you've only been studying Spanish
0: for one semester and all online, so it's not quite the same. Well, I guess that is an interesting way of targeting that advertising for you. So,
1: what else have you been uh, seeing in the news as you've been going through uh, these days? Well, of course, the most dominating thing is the Trump impeachment trial. Yes. he got acquitted to no one's surprise. I mean... His lawyers literally could have said, oh yeah, Trump did it, he did it all, and he wouldn't have been convicted. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it's the Republican senators' careers. I mean, like, Trump still holds massive sway over the party, and, you know, in a primary challenge, going against Trump is... Pretty much the equivalent of a death sentence. Like the the most prominent attack at a opponent could air is he voted against Trump. He hates Trump, he hates America. Right? And with that that could cause them a primary
0: and mean that we end up with candidates who are to one extreme or the other from our two main parties,
1: right? Yeah. And I think no, I believe that if the ballots were secret ballots, and we didn't know who cast them, I think there might have been a few more votes. Because, like, after the trial, Mitch McConnell literally just ripped into Trump as hard as he ever had, and but somehow voted to acquit. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is you believe that
0: there are members of the United States Senate who will believe one thing but vote something else out of political expediency. Yep. Do you think that's new in American politics?
1: Probably not. I mean, it happened back almost in the opposite effect in the 1950s with the Red Scare. I mean, saying, hey guys, I think we should, you know not persecute communists so much. I mean, that that pretty much just opens you up to people yelling at your primaries, he's a communist.
0: Yes, it is great to bring the McCarthy era back, I suppose. There is something else I should delve into a little bit about how politics happens and how votes happen. You know, we've talked over the years, you and I, about Citizens United and the ruling that for me, working in television, was actually quite beneficial financially because it meant that Unlimited amounts of money came pouring into TV stations every election year, and since I worked for a TV station, that was handy. It wasn't so great for democracy, perhaps, and it also meant that an amazing amount of money could be controlled at the national level, to the point where it is now incredibly hard to win a congressional race in the House and certainly the Senate without the national backing of the party. And if you go against party leadership once, they may decide we're not going to fund you and, in fact, we'll fund a challenger, which is how we've gotten to the point where it's almost impossible to have votes that are anything but party-line boats, which, to me, is a big indictment of the two-party system. And I want to ask you this question as a teenager growing up in America today. What's your trust level of our federal government?
1: Eh, it's kind of iffy. I mean, you know, sometimes they'll like actually do stuff. It really depends on who's in power and who's in Congress. But it ultimately comes down to which party is in control and what policies do they want. And the problem with that is the filibuster exists. You think the filibuster uh, is a bad thing? Well, yeah. I mean, if you have, like, a 51-vote majority to pass something, then it should get passed, not 60 votes. That's not the way our Constitution is set up. Our Constitution is set, for a law to be passed, you have to have 51 votes. Not, for a law to be passed, you essentially need 60 votes to end the filibuster. Some
0: votes need two-thirds, but uh, let's talk about that a little bit, because, you know... Our Constitution, our government, really isn't quite exactly a majority-rules government. Uh, If you have, as we have in our current Senate, 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats or Democrat independents acting as Democrats, uh, and a tiebreaker from the Vice President, that gives a slim majority, the slimmest majority possible to one party, do you think that means that that party should be able to ram through everything they want no matter how much the other 50 senators and roughly half the country might object
1: well it's not necessarily that because their majority is so slim you only really need like one moderate democrat to say i don't think this is right oh and
0: you know what that creates it creates power for those individuals who want to get something I'll be the one hold up unless I get a new bridge in my district, right? Yeah. But I want to go back to that question. Is it fair for, if it were not for the filibuster, would it be fair for the 50 plus one majority to run away and do whatever they want and ignore the other 50?
1: Well, it wouldn't be necessarily fair, but then again, they can't run away and do whatever they want. First of all, because they are more moderate branches. And second of all, because of the negative coverage. Because saying, oh, all these senators just vote party line and completely ignore the other half really isn't great press coverage. Versus, well, today President Biden passed bipartisan blah 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 sounds much better to everyone. Because bipartisan generally is a good thing
0: because both sides have to agree. So it's in the f- interest of the majority of the country. Uh, but bipartisan is a lot harder. If you could, if two years between elections, you could roll up a whole bunch of things that one side wanted and the other didn't and just pass them if uh, there were no filibuster,
1: right? Yeah. And, but then again, the filibuster, Like everything has two sides of it Because it can either be used To make sure that something is bipartisan Or to stop a bipartisan effort That is just a few votes shy Of being passed You know, like say 55 senators want it That's bipartisan But it's not enough to get through the filibuster, and a bill will die. Like, back in the 60s, Strom Thurmond, that idiot, for the 1967 Civil Rights Act, he filibustered for 24 hours straight to try to stop the bill, and it almost worked, because, you know, back then, you know, most... A decent majority of people were still racist, especially in the Senate, and they didn't have the 60 votes. They were close, but they didn't, and I mean, where would we be now if the Civil Rights Act had never passed because one staunch guy decided to blab on for 24 hours?
0: Well, since you seem to know so much about the filibuster, surely there have been instances where it's been used for a good cause.
1: Yeah, and those get less talked about, but I still think it's pretty undemocratic that you could defeat a bill just by talking about whatever you want. I mean, there might have to be some limits on terms of relevance, because we all remember that famous moment where Senator Ted Cruz filibustered by reading Green Eggs and Ham to the United States Senate, which, you know... I think the filibuster could maybe not be abolished, but be modified in a way where senators have to stay relevant to the topic.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is to be decided, of course, by the other senators in the very gray area of is this relevant. There may be some work there. I think that, you know, you bring up some interesting ideas, but one of the big challenges is that the party who's in the minority always wants to curb the limits of what the majority party can do and vice versa. So when Republicans had a majority in the Senate, Democrats in the minority were more likely to say, hey, filibusters are an important part of the democratic process. When Democrats are in the majority, Republicans are in the minority, it's the Democrats who are like, hey, that filibuster, we don't like that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, maybe the way they could get rid of the filibuster but still have enough power is to put time limits that are pretty generous for each senator's speech. So maybe you can say that each senator will get, like, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour to speak. So if there are enough senators in the minority party that are willing to, you know, take the stand and speak, you know, you can't just have one person filibustering for six hours. You gotta have six people filibustering for one hour each. I think that'd be a more fair system. Well, that certainly brings up a lot of potential
0: procedural changes in the Senate that could have a lot of impact. How did you become so interested in national politics and Senate procedures in the first place?
1: Well, you know, it's mostly I just skim through the headlines. And the headlines are really good at grabbing your attention. (laughs) I mean, like, other countries, when they come to America and watch some TV, they're like, I cannot believe how sensationalist your news stories are. Like, the headlines...
0: You don't think that there are sensational headlines
1: in other countries? Well, there are, but not to the extent that ours are. And I mean, those headlines have been... Especially on the internet, those headlines have been specifically engineered by a team of psychologists to grab the most attention possible.
0: This team of psychologists, uh, they're like hiding up in a lab somewhere, secretly working away, plotting to overthrow the world? Eh, not overthrow the world. Where did you get this idea that news headlines in other countries are not sensationalized?
1: Well... You know, it's mostly based on the opinions of people who live in those countries who come to America. So, you know, primary sources generally are the most reputable. So, listeners, uh, I thank you again for joining us here. But
0: you're going to find during this time that I don't just let Benjamin say things that he can't back up. So we're going to delve into this a little more. Uh, Give me an example or two of a person or someone who's been from another country who's told you that headlines here are more sensational than they are in their home country.
1: Well, I saw this pretty interesting article. Okay. That was delving into how news is portrayed in different countries versus ours. And different countries, generally, their news coverage is a little more, with the headlines, generally tend to be more vague and unbiased. You know, instead of saying like, ha ha, president did something bad, it's like, president did something somewhere at some time. Which, again, isn't very attention-grabbing. You know, in this era where every single article is trying to compete for your attention versus in the newspaper where there's like one or two articles on each subject you know, when you have access to 50 different newspapers each individual article has to try with like a few words to get their point across and get you to click on them right? Well, I think
0: some of what you're saying makes sense. In an internet era is very different than a headline within a newspaper in a one or two newspaper town. Still, I'm going to go back to this uh, article. Uh, was this a research article or someone's opinion?
1: I think it was a collection of opinions. A collection of opinions? A collection of opinions from people who came to the U.S., like as tourists mm. or as visitors. So, let's talk about some international news.
0: Um, Are you familiar with the British tabloids? No, I'm not. Wow, you have missed a, a huge chunk of international journalism. Tabloids
1: are tabloids. Hollywood tabloids, Bollywood tabloids, they're all the same. Someone's in love with someone, someone's gay, or someone killed someone, right? That's all the tabloids are. Hmm, they
0: have some attention-grabbing headlines. You've you've seen them checking out at the grocery store, I'm sure. It predates the internet age, but it also goes to most countries of the world. In fact, uh, if we were to talk about countries like India, for example, dealing with a real crisis in news and objective journalism because large sections of the country are coming online for the first time with phones, And they are not used to the journalistic rigors that we may have experienced here in the growth of the internet and they are being sensationalized in their news in perhaps even more of a way than we are here in the US. So we can say the British uh, and India are just two examples of other parts of the world where headlines are indeed geared to be just as sensational as they are in the United States. I would venture to say it's probably actually
1: true in most countries. Well, it always, it really can depend on the size of a country, because, say, take a small, like, city-state-sized country, I mean, they only have national news, and we already know that national news tends to be a little more sensationalized and a little more biased than local news. Which is generally really, you know, down to earth, covering local issues.
0: You're going to. So, Iceland? You're saying by your logic that Iceland has
1: overly biased and sensationalized news? No, I'm saying countries. I'm not saying they're overly biased. (laughs) I'm saying smaller than Iceland. I'm talking like city state size. I'm talking. I'm talking like Hong Kong size.
0: Oh, Hong Kong, because there's no political pressures in Hong
1: Kong about what's fact and what's not. Well, Hong Kong size, not Hong Kong. Here, city-states, Monaco, San Marino, Andorra, you know, really tiny countries.
0: How much time have you spent studying the journalism in those countries?
1: Well, I actually, for a report in German class, had to do a pretty big paper... On the country of Liechtenstein, which is a country of around 70,000 people, so yeah. it's really tiny. They have a very fancy
0: insignia, as I recall.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty, in a way, it's kind of like the U.S. It's a, it's a fairly wealthy country, and you can actually rent the country out for a few million dollars a night. The entire country? Yes. Really? Yeah, Snoop Dogg actually tried to rent it, but it got canceled at the last minute. That would
0: have been interesting, but let's get back to the point here. What did you learn about media in
1: Liechtenstein? Well, you know, they, it's kind of like trying to blend national and local news into one, because when you have a country that's small national and local news are pretty much one in the same and it's kind of interesting to see how their national news compared to ours is so much more like local news and so much less biased than ours because Mm -hmm. there's such a gap america's so huge that there's a distinctive line between local news like how those articles are set up in national news right Because a local news article would be like, hospital will be built soon. National news article would be like, a new hospital will cost taxpayers $30 million.
0: Well, I think maybe this distinction in your head is not quite as real as it is in reality. I will say, journalism standards for local media tend to be more pointed towards objectivity, Uh, whereas national outlets have a tendency to try to speak into a crowded uh, marketplace and therefore trigger themselves on the biases people may have in order to get more attention and passion, though that happens in local news too. Now, uh, the example you use, local news, yes, would cover the hospital, and certainly most local news operations would cover how much it costs, what it means to that community. National news isn't likely to cover the hospital unless, you know, there are alligators in it or something along those lines.
1: (laughs) I know. I was just making an example, and what you're saying is what I've been trying to get across. I don't know if I've been saying it the right way, but national news might not be more biased in terms of content, but in terms of just the sheer headlines, they're a bit more sensational. Mm-hmm. So it's not in terms of, you know, left-leaning or right-leaning. It's in terms of sensationalism. Different
0: ways of fighting to attract an audience that may not be as loyal as a local newsreader or viewer is to a brand that they've been loyal to for 10 or 20 or 30 years or their whole life.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, that's exactly what happens is, I mean, you have, like, Say in a town, there's like one, maybe two newspapers and you can pick or choose. And I mean, that's really the only competition. There isn't any. While on a national scale, there are hundreds of different media outlets all trying to get your attention. And that's why they naturally have to be a bit more sensational in their... Headlines to get your attention, and
0: so as you come across these how often do you see an article and even notice
1: which media outlet it's from um you know a few Places you can tell pretty much instantly Like for example MSNBC or Fox News It's pretty easy to tell Because it'll be like, say, for a Fox News article, like, Biden's COVID relief package won't help the majority of Americans study fines. Or something along those lines. Uh Uh-huh. And... And on MSNBC. It'd be Joe Biden's coronavirus relief package is exactly what America needs right now. So, what
0: kind of trust do you have, then, in in national media when you see those sorts of differences?
1: Well, I have a lot of trust in the sites that I know aren't going to be opinionated. NPR, ABC, CBS. You know, those. I trust those a lot more than I would MSNBC or Fox News. I mean, I hardly ever look at articles from them because I just don't believe them. Even though they're on different sides. And that is something
0: I can say in media research in our local markets that we regularly see that our viewers would want, whether they were Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, they don't want media that reflects their personal beliefs. They want someone they know they can trust is telling them the truth. And so they want apolitical news organizations, at least at the local level. And those are the ones that tend to have long-term success. And for a future episode, we'll talk about uh, how we weren't always in a one or two newspaper town scenario and what that meant for staking out different political positions among the newspapers. They haven't always been bastions of great journalism, believe it or not. And I think a future one we'll have to say for talking about Uh, propaganda news as opposed to simply simply slanted news so if you were hoping to hear about uh, Newsmax or others we'll save that for a
1: future episode all right well I think that'll about do it I'm Ben and he's Tim and this is me my team and the news good night
0: thanks for listening everybody